The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to another live edition of What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley. With me tonight are three traditional Catholic priests from the Society of St. Pius V. We have Father William Jenkins, Father Martin Skierke, and Father Thomas Maraska all with us tonight. Right. Fathers, welcome to the program. Great to see you all. Well, thank you, John. It's good to see you again. Yes. We're blessed to have Father Skierke from Montana, and uh, he's uh, in charge of our lady, actually, Immaculate Heart of... Uh, Mary yeah. Church out there, and Father Mroshka is in charge of St. Anne's in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, and so it's a great pleasure having you. The occasion is uh, Father Skirky's 40th anniversary of ordination to the priesthood. And he's also here recovering from uh, surgery to his right shoulder, rotocuff surgery, so recovering well. I've asked you to pray for him in the past, and I thank you for your prayers for him. Yes. Uh, I, it's kind of bittersweet in a sense, good news and bad news. He's recovering so well, he's going to be going back to Montana very soon. <clears throat> good news for the people of Montana, but we'll certainly miss him a great deal. I'm glad that Father Mroshka drove 12 hours from Minnesota to be here for the 40th anniversary. And we're also commemorating the 32nd anniversary for Father Greenwell and Father Bomber. So it's a great, uh, great time of year. Mm -hmm. We're very grateful to God for giving those vocations and sustaining them by His grace. And of course, we're grateful to you for all those years of service, too. <clears throat> While asking for prayers for Father uh, Skirky, I also ask for prayers for his brother, Fred. Fred is very, very ill in Montana, so please keep him and his family in your prayers. Um, and Father Skirky will be uh, heading back there to uh, you know, be with Fred at this time, uh, a little, even a little sooner than we thought. So, in any case, so please, please keep Fred in your prayers, and also uh, uh, Joseph Percher and a number of little children who are ill. And uh, there are a lot of prayer intentions, as you know, a lot, of, a lot of people in need of our prayers out there. And I'd like to take this opportunity to salute uh, Mary and Martha in Memphis. Kind of rolls off the tongue, Mary and Martha in Memphis. <laughs> so, in any case, uh, Tom, you might be aware of other intentions you want to mention, but um, I would just issue a general call for prayer for those who are ill. Yeah, well, I would just say it's, it's not every day that we have, uh, we have three priests with us tonight on the program, but also, of course, Father Greenwell here. It's not every day that we have four priests at one parish, so we're definitely very, uh, very blessed here in, in Cincinnati to have everyone here with us, and it's great to see you on the program tonight. We had a very great uh, celebration, anniversary celebration dinner, uh, very, very wonderful, very fancy dinner tonight uh, with speeches as well. Everything was, was very great, so it's uh, very, been a very very festive time lately. and a lot to uh, be grateful for. Yes, definitely. definitely. But, uh, uh, by the way, Father Marachi will be celebrating his 39th anniversary, and then in short order for his 40th anniversary, too. So we'll be repeating performance here pretty soon. Okay. Thanks be to God. So. Sounds good. Good deal. Yeah. Well, uh, Reverend Fathers, we had several topics on the slate for tonight. Um, the, the first one is, uh, I know we, Father Jenkins, you kind of wanted to put a cap on the discussion that we had last week. Um, in regards to uh, the, the kind of the, the drug crisis uh, that we're facing here in America, we talked last time about a, uh, a recent poll that had come out saying that for the first time in our nation's history, the uh, marijuana usage has surpassed cigarette usage um, here, in the, here in the United States. And just the, uh, 
the overall favorability of marijuana in particular has been um, just just skyrocketing over over the last decade. And uh, so we had a, a bit of a discussion about that last week, and I know you wanted to offer a few final thoughts on that. Well, I, think, I know Brother Rashi and Father Skirky probably have something to say about it too, but uh, we talked about the physiological aspect of it, the effect of the metabolism and so on. It's a barometer of the actually the spiritual condition of our people. And uh, one thing that concerns me about the use of marijuana, other drugs, is the effect it has on the mind and the soul. Um, Remember, I mean, there's a spiritual warfare going on. We pray that God will cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who wander through the world seeking the ruin of souls. There are evil spirits who actually do that. They prowl through the world seeking the ruin of souls. And uh, they have to work on our wills. They work through our imaginations to, you know, tempt us. And uh, they want to weaken our wills. And if there's one thing that we can do that has a noticeable effect on weakening our wills, it's using drugs. Using drugs actually does just weaken our wills so much that it makes us much more subject to diabolical influence. Uh, you know, devils like to, um, well, demons, you know, are, are, are fallen human souls, right? Devils are, are fallen angels, but demons are fallen human souls that are condemned to hell, but they, they are allowed by God you know, we can ask why this is so, but we know that they can prowl through the world seeking the, the ruin of souls. And angels do not have any desire to possess a human body. It's unnatural to them, but it's natural to a human soul, a condemned human soul that has left the body in death, to seek, seek control of human body. It's natural to them. And um, they will seek to possess, and they have to get past the human will, which can resist them. And they weaken that will in any way they can in order to weaken our defenses, in order to get control of that person. And if we, if we see a rise in diabolical influence in the world, we see a rise in diabolical possession of the world. It's because people are, are actually leaving the door open, as it were. Remember the, remember the parable that our Lord told about the, the, the unclean spirit that went out of the man? Read that in the Gospel, you'll see exactly what I mean. And people are actually flinging the doors open to the devil right now by all of this, all of this drug use. Um, we're going to expect that as drug use uh, increases, we're going to expect much more influence of the devil and more and more cases of possession. Uh, there's a reason why so-called indigenous cultures, uh, which we're all supposed to have such you know, admiration for across the board because they're indigenous, I guess, whatever that means uh, really in, in the light of history, but they, they all uh, involved animism and drug spirits, right? These are, not, these are not blessed spirits that prowl through the world seeking the ruin of souls. They're not saints, the souls of saints that do that. <clears throat> and uh, all of these cultures also use drugs. Drugs figured, featured prominently in these so-called cultures. And they would use these drugs in order to, but I guess they'd say, expand their minds and open their minds to the spirit world and allow that spirit world to influence them. It's very, very dangerous, Tom. Yeah, um, yeah you know, you, you see this in Satanism, you see the, the cult, you see this in Wicca, you see us, and all of these uh, ideas that they want to communicate with the spirit world, they realize that, drug is not, that marijuana is not only a gateway to other drugs, but it can be a gateway to other things, too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. For, for Fathers, yeah. You agree? 
Ball means, yeah. Okay. I think Father said, oh, <laughs> we can add to that. I usually do. <laughs> and probably a little more than, you know. But yeah, uh, you I know from your experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the biggest thing is you open yourself up. Mm-hmm. It's like, come on in. Mm-hmm. You give you a will over to what's ever out there. And you're definitely going to see an increase of possession, obsession and, pro- and possession, as it becomes more and more prolific. And we're going to have a, an uphill battle combating the world, the flesh, and the devil in a good fight. And that's, you know, that's where we are in society. Mm-hmm. So, then, too, the church is always against that, as far as weakening the will. Uh, take, for example, you don't hear much about it nowadays, but years ago they would have, uh, uh, you do it, put you in a trance, they would try to hypnotize mm-hmm. you, and the church is against it. For the, mm-hmm. It opens you up. If, but you're surrendering your will. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, Father Moraska, I asked uh, Father Jenkins and Father Skiki last week, what do you what what do you do about this problem in America? How do you how do you rectify this? How do you change the trend? Because we talked yeah. about how this this poll showed that not even the last decade, the um the 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 general perception of uh, of marijuana in particular, the favorability of it ha- has more than doubled. I think, and just in the last not even decade, it's nine years or so. So this trend that we're going on, how how do you reverse that? Well, I guess. <laughs> If there's one immutable truth I learned in life, it is this. Propaganda works. <laughs> if you watch the TV, if you listen to the modern-day music, you are susceptible to the brainwashing and entrainment technology that is out there in every facet of society, the printed press, the radio, the TV, the music, the culture, which propagandize the youth today to accept and to engage in this particular activity. It is an uphill battle for the priest to give advice. It's one thing to say, you know, don't do that, you know, but I I think, uh, I mean, on an individual basis, you have to deal with it. in confession and uh, advise them that you know do you realize that you're committing if you if you use you get drunk all the time if you if, if you're intemperate in the use of alcohol and you get drunk all the time you're guilty of a mortal sin right. and try to emphasize to the people the uh, gravity of the act that you're committing that is an infinite offense against the law of God but you can't move the will God cannot move your will that's a difficult, difficult thing to convey to the laity and to anybody, I guess, you know, is how do you move someone or inspire someone to live a virtuous life? But I think the best way is by a good example. Parents, I said, uh, you know, the best sermon in the world is a good example. You know, as parents, as good parents, you know, every time we have uh, someone dies in the family and, um, you, you look at the eulogy and uh, and someone gets very idealistic and they say, well, mom always said her rosary. It's something I remember about mom. She always did that. But you know, all that's true, but uh, they led by example. If you see that um, as a parent that you fulfill the precepts of the church, you make your Easter duty, you make your annual confession, when mom and dad are always in line in confession, they, they got us out of bed and when you get dressed and you go to church, you know, you get in line for a confession, you receive communion. Parents have to do that. You know, it's like the modern day world is such, well, Johnny, 
what do you like to eat, the ice cream or the broccoli? <laughs> What's the kid going to say? You know, they're too immature to make rational decisions. You have to make rational, good decisions for your children because they're incapable of doing that at that small age. So you as a parent must guide them towards virtue and especially by a good example, I think. That's, that's out the window today. <clears throat> With the divorce rate and, and not even uh, people married... I mean, they're just living together mm-hmm. in an accepted uh, you know, form of, uh, you know, in society today, that uh, of behavior. There's a dissolution of the family. Yeah. It's hard for parents to exercise that. Exercise that good influence of the children without interference. You know? They don't get much support. Well, they don't get any support from the Novus Ordo Church, that's for sure. And then Albert Pike, Morals and Dogma. Mm-hmm. And Alistair Crowley. The Satanist and the Freemason. Right? 33 degree Mason. He said that his name was the parents of Crowley. It's rhymed with holy. Mm-hmm. I know that people say Crowley, but it's holy. He's a Crowley. Mm-hmm. He said the number one object is to destroy the family. Mm-hmm. We must destroy the family. And you see that today. Uh, uh, the family must be destroyed because it is the basic fundamental unit of society. And if you could destroy the family, you then the government becomes God, your God. Mm-hmm. And that's what we have forced upon us today, is that the authority in the, in the world today is not the parents. And if kids say no to the parents, then they're going to say no to God. And, uh, I, you know, and the enemies of God, the enemies of Christ in the church, are doing their utmost to destroy the family, you know, the basic unit of society. And they're doing a very good job of it. Mm-hmm. And then you look around and our people is like, are we crazy? <laughs> are we, as, as, as our current administration says, extremists, because we're trying to live a moral life, not conformity with the modern day world today. And they call us extremists, you know, because we're not conformity. But we don't conform to the norm. The and the rest of the world is looked upon as being normal. Yeah. That's the new standard. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I hear what Father Mrochka is saying. I agree with it totally. I mean, the real way you want to uh, guard your children against these influences, especially getting at a drug so-called culture, everything is a culture right now, um, is to have a strong, loving family. Um, that supports you, you know, in, in life in terms of, especially your faith, right? Okay. Hope and charity, uh, to inculcating you, uh, in you a love for God. I mean, let's face it, uh, saving your soul is a labor of love, ultimately. Mm-hmm. If children do not learn to love, they don't learn to love their parents, they don't learn to love their siblings. Um, these days they hardly learn, learn to love themselves, right? Mm-hmm. They have tons of self-esteem and no self-respect, you know? So that makes them pray to these influences that just, they, you know, they're trying to find out who they are without knowing who God is. But that's worth that way. You have to know who God is to know who you are because you're a creature in the image of God. And you can only know who you are if you know who God is. He's a father, your father in heaven. And so these, these young people are out there trying to find themselves. And yeah, they'll turn into drugs and see if that, if that uh, gives them anything that they aren't getting anywhere else. Well, if they're not getting it anywhere else, it's because they don't have the true religion. And uh, unfortunately, um, you know, out of the Vatican today, we have the Novus Ordo, modernism, uh, being foisted on them uh, falsely. It's a confederate, it's a, it's, it's a uh, pseudo-Catholicism, right? But people are accepting it, and it doesn't give them the spiritual support they need. Um, 
That's why I'm continually telling them, look, you have to go back to practice the traditional Catholic faith and its integrity. But beyond that, I mean, uh, Father Rashi, you're obviously right. If you, if you raise your family in the traditional Catholic faith, but it's a very harsh environment, very forbidding environment, the kind of environment that children want to escape from, then that's going to work against you. But if you raise them as true traditional Catholics, and, and there's a great loving uh, bond in the family, uh, then that is going to be their greatest safeguard against all of the deceits of the devil and the, uh, and the lies of the world. Well, I think this, this leads into the other um, discussion that we wanted to have tonight in uh, regards to uh, some, some practical advice for, uh, for some of our families today. Um, you know, I think in talking before the show, we determined there's roughly around 125 uh, years worth of pastoral experience between the three of you priests and um, certainly lots of, uh, lots of dealing with, with families and young, young families and the rearing of children throughout those years. So what, what advice would you, uh, would you give to families today who are trying to raise children in this environment? You mentioned the culture and how bad the culture is and how, how terribly rotten the culture is. Well. Um, of course, we don't want to go to one extreme and, and completely shelter our children from that culture. Um, so how, how does a parent today navigate this world? How do they find a, a balance of not totally sheltering their, their child, but also not totally exposing them to this rotten culture? How do you find that balance? That's a tough one. <laughs> <laughs> so, any, uh, any... You know, one thing uh, I know that he's, like, uh, some of the fathers... Uh, you know, sort of way on the Minneapolis side where I live, I'm on the east side, but uh, and we've got a lot of uh, Somalians and Muslims there, and they're not afraid to practice their faith in public. And yet you'll find, even amongst good people, people of goodwill, for example, you go to a restaurant, they're ashamed, it seems, to make the sign of the cross or pray grace before our meals in public. And as I said in the sermon, I says, you know, <coughs> If the Muslims are not afraid to practice or express their faith in public, the infidel that they are to do that, then why should we, who have the true religion given to us by Christ, be ashamed to express our faith in public? And a simple thing like that, out of the vice or the sin of human respect, because we're ashamed. And, you know, we think about that uh, is uh, people are intimidated by the society, and they climb up and they follow along to get along. Like Rodney King said years ago, why just can't we all just get along? <laughs> so, <laughs> but uh, it is a terrible, terrible fight. And as you say, uh, you can't lock yourself in a box. I mean, you got to train your, your children in virtue to format, uh, to have the formation, and to raise them in uh, with the Mass and the sacraments to warm them in such a bit to the best of your ability so that they can go out there and they have to face the world. You can't lock them in a the room. They have to go, they're going to see this stuff, they, but they have to be able to face it in a virtuous way with the tools that you give them to fight the good fight. You know, the crucifix in one hand and maybe the rosary in another hand, you know, yeah, spiritual weapons to uh, combat the, the evils of the world. I don't know. Well, you uh, put them in a bubble and then when they do go out there, yeah. They will not know anything. They'll just they'll go wild. They'll just embrace everything. And what do you mean by putting them in a bubble? Just keep them isolated from everything out there. Not that you want to throw Shielding them out. Them shield them. Shield them. So they don't ever see anything. They don't ever hear anything. So if you do that, keep them in the bubble. You keep them in a box, he said. 
they open doors, just a whole wide new world out there, and it's all exciting to them, it's something new. It's like when I left home, I didn't notice anything but, uh, you know, well done steak. Went out the world, I found there's all, there's all kinds of different ways you price steak. And as these kids, they go out there and they see this whole new wide world and it's enticing. It's in, in, and they see these people out there, they're getting along, they don't go to church, they can have their nice cars, they have all the things they can do. And uh, it's... Uh, it, it all goes back to original sin. The, yeah. The demos, that demos, that fruit. But if you could... It became delight, it'll be, uh, delightful to behold. Mm. You know, mm. and she desired it, you know. And that's why you got to fight. <coughs> but you that that strong connection towards evil mm. is so strong. It's like the uh, iron filings being drawn to the magnet. It's, 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 it's it has attraction. Always there. Mm. And that's it. Nothing. There's nothing new under the sun. You and you know, you don't like I said. You see, you don't want to throw the kids out there. And say, here, right. go on out there. You got to get them ready. You got to prepare them for that. You just whether it's for marriage or just leaving home. If you say, well, you know, some kids just get up and goes gets married. They don't know anything's going on. It's gonna be a disaster. Same thing. They they go out of the world. They just at home and do see nothing, do nothing, not nothing. They're gonna go out there and they're gonna find something else. Like one gentleman told me one time, he said, I finally grew up and I was 28 years old. So he got married 22. So he have a minor 16 year old. So you got to raise these kids, these children, so that they're not just a 16 year old in a 21 year old world. And but they got to be trained to to know their faith, live their faith, practice their faith, love their faith. And I like to say this: if you uh, if anything's worthwhile, it's going to cost something. If you expend time, money, whatever, on something, you're going to appreciate it. So if you do nothing to preserve the faith, you're not willing to do very much, for the, say, for the church, for to spread the faith, to practice your faith. If you don't got anything invested in it, you have nothing to lose. So if you can get invested, I mean, take years ago, like I started, take years ago. If someone would go to Mass, they'd have to set the altar up, get rent a room, set the altar up, set the chairs up, set everything ready for Mass. Priests come in and then have to take it all down, put it away. Now, you don't have to worry about that. We all got church, which is a nice thing. It's a good thing for them. But now they got to do something else. So they, they got to, I, I used the word the other day, they got to buy into it. They got to spend, they got to expend themselves. They got to, it's going to, the faith has to be something for them. It has to cost them something that, that they will appreciate what they do. It's just like in a marriage. If, if, if it's going to cost you a lot to get, get married, you're going to love that which you have bought, your, your wife, your husband. If you spend a lot to keep that, it's going to appreciate it. Or whatever, any example you want to use. And I think they have to understand it's, it's, it's not a freebie. It's something they got to work at because they don't. If you don't do it, if you don't work and expend something in faith, you will lose the faith. I'm convinced of it. So I think that's a, something that's how you can put it in practice. I don't know. You can't just drive 200 miles, go to Mass, it was church around the block. But I think they can do something, do something to see that they are engaged in, in the faith in the sense that it's going to cost them something. They've got to do something to make them that they, they're investing their time their, into their, 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 their faith, their, their, the church. Mm -hmm. as, uh, a, as, an, as an aside, talking about cultural changes, 1962, I was on the Little League team. We won the game. The coach would buy an ice cream stand. He'd buy all the boys an ice cream cone. I meet my ice cream cone there, and there's a group of guys standing over there on the side, and one fella used some bad language, and he noticed me. He came over to me, and he said, I apologize for using bad language in your presence. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Things have changed a the lot. Of course, is it? Mm -hmm. No, no, the, one, of the fellas, one of the fathers or something. Oh, okay. 
But he came over to me because he noticed me there, and he apologized for using bad language. How old were you at the time? Like ten. Oh, really? Yeah. He, he, he was an adult, you know. He oh, good. Bad language, you know. Yeah. 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 I mean, and and nowadays they'll use bad language for the priest yeah. in front of me. Are you here? Just. Yeah. I mean, just how things have changed so much Cash. that. Uh, yeah. That that's why uh, if you try to. Oh, from the pulpit, then you're probably considered by the modern-day world some kind of extremist. <laughs> well, the, yeah. Brother Rashi, the fact that after all these years, you remember that experience remember as that. a 10-year-old, an adult coming over and apologizing for language that he used. Yes. I mean, that really made an impression on you, oh, obviously. Yes, absolutely. That, that's a lesson for adults today, too. Oh, yeah. uh, they, they have to uh, correct the, you know, the bad example they, they give, and, uh, but that, that Father set a good example for all of you. That I mean, not using the banned language, but having the ability to admit it yeah, was yeah, wrong. Yeah, apologize for it. Yeah. You must have a very edifying presence, Father Maroska. He must have seen the halo over here. Yeah, yeah. 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 that's yeah. Yeah. yeah, Father, which which of these extremes do you see uh, more frequently? Where the the Catholic child, in particular, say, is he is he more sheltered? are uh, more exposed to the world to an extreme. Which, which one do you, would you say is the greater danger? Which one do you see more often? See them both. See them both. Yeah. Which is worse. Yeah. You get those that stay at home, they don't want to have anything to do with anybody else, anything else, they're going to lose the faith. Put them out in the world, they see it, they go out there and and how strong they are. Mm -hmm. Weak-willed. My probably, people suffer for a lack of knowledge. <laughs> Assessment. Uh, a lot of people don't have, the, and you have to have that root. Of, that's one thing I'm lacking in it. I teach the catechism to the youth, and uh, to, so they have to understand the rudiments of the Catholic faith. And we get converts, and uh, you talk to some of these uh, people that grew up in the North Sarda, and you ask them some basic, like how many how many commandments are there? <laughs> Five, two, three. <laughs> yeah, let alone name them. Yeah. Or how many sacraments have you seen this, Father? Right? Oh, all the time. Yeah. And then, then you have people coming, these converts come in. I've seen it. Uh, it's a sort of a starting factor. You ask them what religion are. So you see where they're coming from, how much they know one thing or another. Mm. So they'll say, Well, I'm Christian. Years, years ago, they said Methodist, Lutheran, Baptist, whatever. No. Nowadays, the big response I get, I'm Christian. For a lot of people, Christian means they believe in God, and that they don't know anything about God or who He is, what it is. Yeah. They know God exists, but they don't know how He exists. They just got that feeling. That's, yeah. so that's what you start with. And Catholics know better than the new knows are Catholics know better than the Methodists. I actually had a Baptist one time actually knew something. She knew a little bit. Of the, she read the Bible a little bit. So, but they 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 lack knowledge in the things of the faith. Well, St. Pius X, uh, in his encyclical Cherbo, Nimes, wrote in the early 1900s, 1905-1906, that the greatest evil of the day was the ignorance of Catholics about their faith. Right. The Catholics who, who scarcely knew enough to save their souls. This was in you know, the middle 1900s. You know, so, I mean, it's, uh, it certainly hasn't gotten any better. I uh, went to a, um, a school, when my family moved from... Uh, the north down to Florida, South Florida, back in the early 1960s. I did my eighth grade in a school called Our Lady Queen of Martyrs in there. I did eighth grade there, and uh, this was in 64, and 
we still had pretty much the traditional textbooks and traditional faith being taught during the height of Vatican II. But uh, some years later, I actually returned to teach seventh eighth grade there after I graduated and was pretty much out of the seminary, out of the Novus Ordo seminaries, looking for a traditional seminary to go to. So I went back to teach seventh eighth grades in the same school, and it was a different world. It was a different planet there. At a classroom of seventh eighth grade kids, and uh, uh, the fellow in the classroom next door was an atheist from California. He was teaching the confirmation class, the atheist hippie from California, and uh, I was supposed to be teaching religion and math. And I would ask the kids the most fundamental questions. They had no clue whatsoever. I once had them take out a sheet of paper and write numbers in the margin, and I would just ask them uh, catechism questions, ask them to write the one or two word answers. Uh, they had no clue that there were Ten Commandments, uh, Seven Sacraments. I, I asked them at one point, well, please name whatever sacrament you know. Whatever sacrament you know, just write down the name. I got blank page after blank page after blank page. One girl, I give her a lot of credit. One little girl, seventh grade, <clears throat> knew the name of one of the sacraments. She actually had something written on the paper. Holy Confusion. <clears throat> that was the only sacrament she knew. And I would say, well... It really applies, doesn't it? And uh, I felt so sorry for these children. I wanted trying to teach them the Apostles' Creed and the Act of Contrition, at which point <clears throat> I was denounced to the pastor. This would have been in mid-1970s, mid-1970s. Um, so actually, uh, just about 10 years after I left there myself, right? And uh, the pastor didn't want to deal with it. So he turned it over to his young assistant, uh, a new, fairly newly ordained priest who was there actually probably running the place, you know. And he uh, called me in and he told me I was confusing the children by teaching them the Apostles' Creed and the Ten Commandments, the Act of Contrition, because they had never learned these things before and I was confusing them. Well, he was right about one thing. They never learned these things before. It was kind of ironic because as we were crossing the parking lot on a Saturday, he was going over to say the 5 p.m. liturgy. And uh, we were accosted by uh, a Mrs. Finnegan. And Mrs. Finnegan, I don't know if she heard what the priest was telling me about how he was confusing the children uh, by teaching them the Apostles' Creed, but Mrs. Finnegan broke right in. And she said, oh, I just want to tell you, I'm so grateful that you're teaching my children something about their faith because they've been here all these years, they've learned nothing about the Catholic faith. And she said, excuse me, Father, and she took off. <laughs> She'd probably come for their 5 p.m. liturgy, but... Uh, I think she probably expressed what many of the parents felt. Well, then there's a little kid that's asked, I didn't do it, but I was told by someone who asked the little kid, he says, how the story goes, I don't know, but the, part, the part, point was that he asked the little, this 10-year-old kid, he says, well, what religion are you? He says, the, the child asked, he says, I think I'm Catholic. Mm -hmm. Whatever that, that means. So. Whatever that means. <laughs> well, there you are, that's modernism. That's what yeah. modernism does, right? What what uh, what roles do Catholic what what role does a Catholic school play in and uh, and this this formation of a child? Because we we um, we some, sometimes hear I don't know if you see this, but we we sometimes uh, hear that a parent can uh, use attempt to use a school as kind of a substitute um, where the, their child maybe doesn't have a whole lot of Catholic life at home. Or here they send them to a Catholic school and they think, okay, that's good. I have my child in a Catholic school. They're going to get a real Catholic upbringing now, and that is that is that is sufficient. Um, do you see that very often? Maybe that's a mistake people made in the '60s when their children came out of the schools and lost their faith entirely. 
<clears throat> they go off to high school, go to college. They lose their faith entirely. You know? And so people are making a big mistake in letting them go to these places in the first place and not washing them very carefully. You know, we, we recently had a couple of shows uh, on the book um, Murder in the 33rd Degree by Don Charles Theodore Murr, M-U-R-R. Uh, very important book to read these days. And, you know, for those who didn't see the shows, uh, Don Murr was a young, newly ordained clergyman when in the, in the 1970s he became aware through his uh, association with, Cardinal, uh, with Archbishop Gagnon and um, Cardinal Benelli and others of the presence of the Freemasons in the Curia in Rome, in the Vatican. And uh, now, just recently, uh, Father Murr has produced this book to detail the efforts that were made to have those Masons denounced, not only identified, but also expunged, and how ultimately that, that failed, right? Um, although efforts, there were, there were very strong efforts being made by Archbishop Gagnon back then to do that, and others who are helping and assisting him are trying to. Um, but, uh, for example, he brings out in the book that during uh, Paul VI's tenure, uh, these Masons were brought in by the, in, in, basically in droves, apparently. I mean, I didn't give numbers, but they were, they were given extremely high places that Paul VI actually uh, transformed the, the, um, the Curia so that the Secretary of State had enormous powers. He concentrated powers in the hands of the Secretary of State and then named a Mason to be the Secretary of State, Bion. Uh, and, uh, and his assistant, Casaroli, became same. He was also a Mason. And uh, the man who was choosing the bishops, uh, he was a mason, very strong mason. Read the book, you'll understand. Watch the programs, you'll understand. But now, after all these years, um, Don uh, Charles Murr has, has said that he's rejected the, 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 tradition, the new mass and that he has actually uh, exclusively you know, returned to the traditional Roman rite of mass in Latin. And uh, he, actually, he, he, he associated that decision with watching the show, this program. And I was very happy to hear that, and I thank him for letting us know that. <clears throat> but when people asked, when interviewers asked him, well, what can we do? What can people do now in the face of all of this? And his answer was, as Father Marashka pointed out the other day, get catechism, read the catechism, learn the catechism, learn your faith, learn your faith, learn your faith. And that seemed to be very fundamental. But that's where we are right now. And I, I think what Don Murray is actually saying by that is people don't know their faith, they have not been taught their faith, so they have to go back to the most fundamental thing. They have to get... He didn't say the traditional catechism, like distinguishing from the modern simple, catechism. Simple catechism so. but, but he said a simple catechism. The simple catechism, the, the real traditional Catholic catechism. Learn your faith. That's, what, that's where it has come down to right now. So I, I hear what you're saying here, and I, I hear that kind of implicit in what you're saying that you have to give them a grounding in the faith. After all these years, they're not going to get it from the modernists in the new order. Um, so basically, you have to start there at the most fundamental level of learning the faith yourself and teaching it to your children. And you could, it'd, be a, it'd be contradictory to say, well, the school can teach you. I don't have a school out there, but just let the parents say the school teach them and they do nothing. It's like, do as I say, but don't do as I do. They're going to pick up on that fast. Yeah. The parents don't follow through. They don't work with the school. They're the school. They'll, they'll just go to school doing it all. I just could imagine they're they're not going. Kids aren't going to do anything. It's children aren't just going to do anything because parents aren't doing it. 
Even if you have a traditional Catholic school, and the children are going and learning their catechism, if they come home and they find that the parents don't know their catechism, uh, the, the children get the idea that it's not that important. It's for them to learn when they're kids, but when you grow up, you forget about it. It doesn't matter. It's very important that the parents nowadays actually be learning and studying the faith with the children. Not only does that reinforce what the children are learning in school in terms of the material, but it reinforces the idea, this is important, I need to know this going further. It's important to my mom and my dad to do this. If, for example, I mean, if the children go to school and they learn to pray, and they come home and they don't pray, nobody prays. That's teaching the children that, okay, praying is for kids. When I'm not a kid anymore, it doesn't matter. I can give it up, right? So it's important that the parents set the example of praying, as you were mentioning, the, important, uh, the example is important, because it not only teaches, it reinforces the words of the prayer in the children's minds, but it instills the, the, the meaning of the words in their hearts and says, this is important. For your mom and dad, it has to be important for you too. The well, family really needs to pray together. But the the uh, primary duty and obligation of parents is, is to provide for the spiritual and physical education of children is their responsibility. Secondarily, it's maybe that the school or the Catholic. Well, you have others. But it's primarily the, the parents. Right, and the school know. and others, wherever, they're to help the parents. Right. They're not to, to supplant the parents. Mm -hmm. okay. Well, unfortunately, I think some parents think that <clears throat> they'll just let school take care of it. Right, exactly. So they're glorified babysitters. That reabsolves re them of responsibility. <laughs> but if parents didn't think like that. I mean, if they, if they thought back in the 60s and 70s, well, send the kids off to the Catholic schools, and the Catholic schools have raised my kids for me, and I don't have responsibility, they lost their kids. If they sent their children to the school with the idea, okay, I'm entrusting this role to these people, and, uh, but it's primarily my responsibility, so I'd better keep track of how well they're being taught in their faith, they would not have had their children so completely confused and, uh, and, and and unfortunately their faith destroyed <clears throat> and they you know often they, they simply weren't paying attention yep. so um, it's very important that that they do pay attention right not only that but uh, they have to lead the way but I mean if, if a parent came to you today you don't mind my asking a question sure. Tom's a parent for example Suppose a parent came to you today like Tom and said uh, Look, you know, I, I, I'm thinking of sending my kid to a Nova sort of school. I'm thinking of sending my child to a, a, a fundamentalist Christian school where they're moral. I'm thinking of sending my children to a public school uh, where, you know, they're, they're diff different varieties, right, in different neighborhoods and so on. Well, they'll say it's a small school. I know the teachers. I know the principal. It's a good little school. Yeah, maybe, maybe they can vouch for that. But I mean, what would you say of parents who have like limited choices as far as schools go? What would you say of parents who are facing the question of uh, homeschooling their children or sending them to a traditional Catholic school? They have one available. I mean, you know, people people have to make choices these days, and sometimes it can be very confusing to them. All right. You had a school out in Montana for a while, mm -hmm. right? Yes. And you have a school now. I do. So, a lot of people, uh, because of the lockdown, the COVID in the United States, found out for the very first time what's being taught in public schools. Mm -hmm. 
And the, uh, in fact, the way we get our uh, uniforms at McDonald's in St. Paul for our, our school, the school uniforms, the uh, owner down there said there's been an increase of requests for uniforms because parents mm. saw for the first time what they're actually teaching there. Mm -hmm. And they weren't aware until they got into on the Zoom, but they were uh, being taught by Zoom or, or Skype uh, in the school district. And they actually saw for the very, their eyes were open for the first time to see what they're at, and they, they were drawing their kids. And I think also the parents are finding out that they can teach their kids. Right. They're, yeah. they're, they can, can instruct. And they've done it. They teach their teach your children to speak. They teach them all kinds of stuff. So why not teach them a little bit farther? You know? mm -hmm. So they, they found out, that, I think people found they can do that. And they formed their little clubs. Uh, they, well, some of them was a little bit of biology, some of them was about chemistry, some of them was about math. There's the English literature, too. And they you form a little clique. Co-op. Co-op, they call it. Mm -hmm. of, uh, you, know. so you don't have to do it all yourself. You, get, you, have, you have to get on social media and talk to others and, and you know, get your own little uh, group together. You know? And a lot of people are doing that. Mm -hmm. so, I mean, it's tough. No matter how you slice it, dice it, or cut it, it's tough. No, nobody's going to deny that. But, and I, I really feel sorry for modern-day parents today, because it isn't like it was you know, when we grew up, for sure, you know, and uh, I mean, it's, it's a tough, tough, tough world out there, so mm -hmm. I blame the clergy, the modernist, and because, number one, in the modern-day priests, do not preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to the people. You have a social gospel being taught to the people, a feel-good, you know, touchy-feely type of gospel that's been there for 40 years now. And uh, and if you preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to the people, and teach them the faith, you know, then the rest is in God's hands, you know. And and through the through the sacraments and the mass, I mean, you read the stories. I read a story one time about these British uh, soldiers and they during World War Two. There's a Japanese camp and they are freed, and they're all tattered and ragged and half starved to death. And they after the war ended, they were set free. And they got into the camp where the American soldiers were. And the uh, captain there, the officer in charge, before they requested anything for their own personal medical attention, food, water, anything. We haven't been to Mass in a long time. We might have to go to Mass. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> their first request, we might go to Mass. This was the real Mass, too. Yeah. yeah. The, the yeah. big Mass. Back in the 40s. You know, so. I mean, it shows you when people had the faith. Now... Mm. Uh, Whole mindset is different than the modern day world today. So, I mean, that's all gone, you know, except for small pockets of individuals who have kept it, like traditionals of faith, traditional groups that have kept the faith. You know. yeah. Okay. Well, any anything else on this matter? Any other um, practical advice that you could give for parents raising children in the world today? Well, guarding their innocence is so difficult today. You know, you mentioned yeah. raising them in a box, raising them in a bubble. And uh, to a certain extent, you have to protect them. Right, absolutely. But, yeah. you know, they're not going to develop the strength of character and the, refine their consciences without uh, exposing them to the challenges, the moral challenges of the world. But you have to do it in the right way at the right time. And that takes a, an enormous amount of wisdom on the part of a parent. 
uh, you, you're not going to keep them in a bottle uh, all of their lives. They're going to have to get out and interact with this world. Actually, that's what our Lord wants them to do, right? <clears throat> I mean, even if they enter a convent, uh, even a cloistered convent, they want, they're going to make that decision uh, with knowledge of what they're giving up. So, um, you know, a cloistered convent wouldn't ordinarily take a vocation uh, unless the person was mature enough to, to know what decision they were making and that it was solid. Uh, St. Teresa of the Child Jesus is a, is a prime example of an exception to that, right? Because of her perseverance. Uh, but um, usually when you have a, a convent, and notably a cloistered convent, uh, they want people who are mature enough, they understand enough of the world to make a, an informed decision about what they're doing. So it's something solid. And they know what they're choosing. <clears throat> and with their, what they're, they're, they're giving up, they're surrendering. <clears throat> so there, there has to come a point in the lives of the children where you, you have to trust them. They have to be able to be trusted to make the right decisions when they have decisions to make, uh, when their, their faith and hope and charity are being challenged by the things of the world. Um, you know, you, you feel so for, sorry for parents who raise children to get to be 15, 16, 17 years old, and, and you hear the parents say, I can't trust him. I can't trust my son. I can't trust my daughter. You know, 17-year-old girl is being picked up by her friends. They're driving away, and the parents have this feeling of foreboding. I can't trust her. I don't know what she's really up to out there. <clears throat> that's an awful feeling. I know that's sort of the problem because parents, what are they supposed to do? They're supposed to raise their children. Their jobs raise their children to adults. So when they leave home, mm -hmm. they can carry on without floundering. So right. I try to talk to, to teenagers, children, whoever, and point out that they're going to just go through life and not listen to parents, not follow their direction, not follow their advice, not doing their jobs, hold their parents' contempt. They'll grow up whether they do anything or not. They can sit in a rocking chair until they're 21. They'll grow up physically, but they might have a mind of a 15-year-old. So if the, but, and they will get the knowledge eventually, but they don't have that knowledge. I and mean, they're, they're, they're children. They don't have any experience. But if they would just actually listen to their parents, follow their direction, take their example, watch what they're doing, and, and let them be guided by their parents. If, that, if they would do that, but how do you tell the child to do that? But if they would do that, when they grow up to be 21 years old, then they can have a mind of 21 year old. But that's the problem is if you just get them to understand that they have to learn piggyback, if you will, off the knowledge experience of their, of their parents. But you know, you could have uh, three, five, 10 children, and each one will be different. You'll raise one child and you'll think, well, this child I can trust, but the next child down the, down the line, you might not have that feeling, you can, you, they, you can trust them. I mean, imagine how sad it is and frightening for a parent to think, well, my child, my son or my daughter is 17 years old, but I still don't feel that I can trust them to make the right decisions according to their faith yeah. and hope and charity, their love for God, that will keep them safe morally and physically. But imagine the parent also who gets to the, that point in life where they have children 17, 18 years old, and the parents really do have the, the firm uh, trust that, yes, I can trust my daughter. I can trust my son. It doesn't mean that they're impeccable. It doesn't mean that they're saints yet, but I can trust them because I believe their consciences are well-formed. They know right from wrong. They care. They have a certain love for God. They have a certain respect for their mom and dad. They would never do anything to offend God. They would never do anything to disgrace their parents. You know, when a parent has that conviction that the child 
is that uh, devoted to God and, uh, and to them themselves, their family, uh, that is the greatest reassurance they have. Yeah, that yep. Their children are going to be safe morally and physically. And how do you get them to that point? Well, and the children are so different. You know, you have to... Yep, you just, that, but that's your task. I, I understand, Father Skirky, that's your task as a parent to raise each child that you're trying to get them to that point where you develop their conscience to be so filled with faith and hope and love for God that you actually can expect them to make the right choices. And if they fall, because, let's face it, I mean, they are human beings like the rest of us, and they're young people. And if they do fall, that they recognize it, they admit it, and they repair it. And they, they make reparation work and get back on track again. And for me, I talk to children, 10, 12, 18, I, I, tell them, I tell them what I just said earlier about how you got to grow up mentally, you know, with your conscience, with everything else, even the material things. If, if you can do that, so I'm, I'm hoping, I'm hoping I can make a sink into them that, that they just don't have the experience their parents have. They just don't have it. They don't have the knowledge your parents have. You, know, you give an example to them that, well, your 10-year-old sister and your 18-year-old 10-year-old sister, does she know as much as you? Obviously, they don't. And they understand that. So if you can get them to, uh, my goal is if I can get them to understand how little they know, then hopefully they will listen to parents, take the guidance parents, the direction of parents. That's not easy. That's not easy, but, <laughs> but I'm, I'm just, that's my mantra nowadays. To, little knowledge I talk, is a dangerous I, That's thing. what I tell them. I keep telling them. And I point out how little they do know. Well, you know, here, you hear 15 and 16-year-old kids say to their parents, you don't trust me, you don't trust me. And then you hear parents say, well, I, I do trust you. I trust you to be a 15-year-old boy. Yeah. I trust you to be a 16-year-old girl. I mean, it's like, I trust you. And that's exactly the point. That, uh, you cannot be given the same trust. You know, you have to earn that trust by showing that you can do the right thing, or make up, the right yeah. decisions on your own. Uh, but the very fact that you, you say that to them, right? You have to earn the trust by showing that you can make the right decisions means that you give them the opportunity to make the right decisions. But if you give them the opportunity to make the right decisions, that also implies you're giving them the opportunity to make the wrong decisions too, right? So they have yeah. to prove themselves. You just don't assume that they're going to get it right every time from the, from the, the, the very beginning. You know, you have to kind of let them little by little by little uh, prove that they can be trusted and that they're responsible. Difficult, most yeah. difficult task, perhaps in the face of the world, to raise children. I've actually come across too where parents, their children are. 20 years old, 21 years old, 22 years old. And parents say, well, they're of age, they can make their own decision. It's crazy. I mean, if they're, they're wrong, tell them. Tell them they're wrong. <laughs> tell them they need to be corrected. Because if they're 22 years old and they only have a mind of a 16 year old, they're not going to make good decisions. They can't make good So they think, well, because they're 21 years old, they're 22 years old, or something. Yeah. They, they, they do what they want to do. That, that's a mistake on parents. That little Bring Crosby movie. When I was 16, I thought my father was the dumbest person <laughs> in the world. And when I was 26, I was surprised to learn how much he learned in 10 years. <laughs> yeah, 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 right. Yeah. You know, a lot of times you tell, like, you, you try to advise the kids something. It's not that I'm any smarter. And it's just, hey, been there, done that experience. Yeah. Here's a give it a, a prudent advice. Because you, you, you feel for your kids because they're your kids. You know, and uh, I want to make a mistake here. And I tell you from experience, this is what I'm telling you this because this is what I've learned in life. And to be receptive to prudent advice, not that you want to rule them with an iron fist, but I mean, uh, they have to, I mean, they're going to have to go out and they make decisions for themselves and they're going to make mistakes. You know? Well, hopefully they can learn off the experience their parents, yeah. but they, they won't make those mistakes. That's my point with them. Mm -hmm. I don't know that parents realize how 
dear their children are to us. We have them in our schools, yeah. in our parishes. We, I mean, I'm sure you, you find yourself wondering, gee, I wonder how so-and-so is doing, you know. You haven't seen them, um, maybe you hadn't talked to them in a while. Now you realize, well, she's probably 25 years old right now. He's probably 28 years old right now. Maybe they moved away. You know, you, you don't forget them. You never forget them. You're always wondering, how are they doing? It's not even, you know, after all those years, you pray for them. Right. And uh, pray that they, um, you know, ask our Blessed Mother to, you know, keep her eye on them, wherever they may right. be. Uh, but I, I don't know that the parents, and I certainly don't think the children themselves realize after 10 years being out from under the roof, school roof, God forbid, 10 years out from being out of the church roof, I don't think they realize that we are mindful of them. We never forget them. They're, they're very dear to us, too. Um, and they will always have us praying for them. Um, I just wish that... Um, well, the, the parents, I mean, have to, first of all, um, you know, with their relationship with priests, show enough respect so that if their children need help and guidance, they have such an example for the children, the children will learn from the parents' example to have some respect for what the priest has to say. If the parents do not show that respect to the priest, when the time comes that parent needs an ally, you know, to influence the children in the right way, if they've undermined the priest's authority, as parents sometimes can even undermine each other's authority, right, by criticizing each other in front of their children, they've just really basically knocked out of contention the, the best ally, the strongest allies they've had, you know, when they need another voice to, to support them. So this is why it's so important that the church, the school, and the family work together, very closely together, and none say anything about the other that would undermine the respect that, you know, the, the pastor of the church, the, the leadership of the school, and the, uh, of course, the parents at home. Um, I, I once had a girl who was having a little bit of a tantrum, a teenage girl, <clears throat> It had to do with the way she was dressing and conducting herself, and her parents were trying to tell her, look, this is not acceptable. There were other things involved, too. She didn't like the restrictions that her parents were imposing. So her, her mother asked me to come and talk to her. Well, it was, like the, it was the worst possible set of circumstances, as far as I'm concerned. But because it was the circumstances that was handed, I came out and I tried to talk to the girl. And after trying to explain to her in a fairly nice way, uh, you know, I, I try to be nice once in a while, in a fairly nice, rational way, uh, about what this is right and why this is right, and she should respect that her parents, she said to me, you know, you priests all say the same thing. And I thought, well, uh, I would hope so. <laughs> but what does, that, what does that tell you? I mean, does that prove to you we're all wrong? Uh, it should indicate to you that we still all say the same thing because we all believe this the truth. We're convinced about that. Um, anyway, but that's that's the remark a child would make. Yeah, yeah. That's how a child sees things. So she was speaking as a child, and she seriously was not as mature as her years required of her. You know, she was unfortunately getting beyond. Uh, uh, she was outgrowing her maturity, shall we say? Uh, this is the hard part with it. The youngsters today, you get the 34-year-old uh, child um, that just never grew up. Full of self-esteem and no self-respect. 16-year-old mind, right? Mm -hmm. I met 18-year-old yep. men and 78-year-old 
boys. Children, yeah, that's so true. Yeah, we grew up, you know. Mm -hmm. And you try to tell your children, you know, you tell the girls, look, you, you don't want to marry boys. You want to marry men. And you, you men, you don't want to marry girls. You want to marry women who are grown up. Unfortunately, if they haven't matured beyond the level of being a boy, then they will try to marry someone as a girl. And the only one who will marry them is a girl, not a woman. Uh, so the, the immature tend to marry the immature. And, and it reinforces the whole one process. Gentleman, one gentleman told me, he's, he's married, had kids. He said, I finally grew up at 28 years old. Got married at 22. So what do you get married a 16-year-old mind? Then you wonder why the problems in the family. Well, uh, you know, God bless our parents. They undertake one of the most difficult tasks in the world today. If they're willing to do it. It takes an enormous amount of sacrifice. God bless them for it. We have to pray for them. And have to support them wherever we can. They have to let us support them too, you know, to try to uh, guide them by the wisdom of the church, not our own wisdom so much, but the wisdom of the church and how to raise the mom and dad have to be on the same page. You know? Yes, definitely. I remember my mom told me, she said, you know, no matter what, she says, your father and I, we had our difficulties. She says, and they get mad and they fight. She says, I used to divorce your father at least three times a year. <laughs> you used to do what? She used to divorce your father at least three times a year. And they make up, you know, and she says, you know, but one thing she says, I'll tell you that uh, we were able always to talk to each other about the kids. When the kids went to bed, we sit down at the kitchen table over a cup of coffee. Here's what we got to do. Yeah, and they work as a team. The rule, you know, here's what's best for the kids. So-and-so is doing this. Like, okay, let's work this out here. And they were able to communicate and talk to each other and work the problems out. See, they had their priorities straight. Yeah. They had their priorities straight. Yeah. Yeah. So. It's it's good to see them taking that, <clears throat> saying, okay, but the kids are bad. We've got to talk together about this and come to an agreement yeah. and yeah. find a practical solution. And that's real maturity. Yeah. Uh, you'd like to see that in the parents yeah. today. They're able to do that. Now, I, I tell the parents, I tell young people who are preparing for marriage that they have to give time for each other uh, take every every month at least time to spend time with each other, talking to each other about the things that are really important to them. They can't get so caught up in the minute to moment uh, maelstrom and day to day disasters. They can't get so caught up in these things that they they never actually can talk rationally, calmly, thoughtfully with each other. Let's see, that's a prime example by the Rashka of uh, parents who knew the importance of being able to do that. I think well, it was a little funny, the other side, a little funny story. I uh, was 14, 15, summertime, I was sitting on the front porch. We had a big swing on the porch. The neighbors across the street there, they were uh, not Catholics, but they had pretty foul mouths. And there was a set of twins, I wouldn't mention their names, but there's a set of twins there. And the one boy got mad at his sister and he came stomping up, running up the street, cussing out of his sister. And I right rolled my eyes. I looked at my mom. I was embarrassed because of the language. And my, I'm with my mother, you know, next to me. And, and I looked at my mom. And I said, you know, who would ever marry something like that? And my mother looked, my mom looked at it. She's very practical, you know, Polish logic. She looked, well, they'll live for every pot. <laughs> <laughs> never forgot that, you know. But, uh... Mary like kind, right? Yeah. Well, uh, we, That's we've, a little joke, so. yeah. <laughs> yeah. we've uh, we've we've highlighted, I think, a lot of the the difficulties of the uh, parental life. But I would say that we can, uh, lest we discourage any prospective parents out there, I'd say uh, 
we can definitely thank heaven for the sacrament of matrimony where we have mm -hmm. uh, through that I think a lot of graces to deal with a lot of these uh, all these very tough issues that well, come the up. Toughest jobs in the world being a parent. Yeah. Yeah, but I, I know there are many. Um, but that's why there's a sacrament to support, yes. it, right? Yeah, I know there are many. There's a sacrament, one of the seven sacraments the Lord dedicated yeah. to that vocation. Mm -hmm. That's you know, a real testament. the weakness and the frailty of human nature, that's why he's given us the seven sacraments mm -hmm. as the means of grace whereby we can help us by the supernatural assistance of God to get to heaven someday. Well, our Lord... You need his help, you know? St. Paul talks about yeah. the, the, the image of the love between the husband and wife as being the mirror image of the love between God our Lord and his saints, you know. So that's quite a quite a task, but the graces are there, no doubt about it. And uh, they are there in the in the nuptial mass. You read them, them in the Epistle of Saint Paul. But uh, yeah, the, the the graces of this uh, state of life are there, promised to those who enter it. So you're right. We don't want to chase or scare people off, because uh, the graces are there, and there's an enormous reward for that too. So uh, you know what could be. I mean, other than beyond being in the state of grace and having the faith, the children are the greatest blessing God, God can give, right? Uh, to those who are called to give life. So, uh, we, but they need our prayers and uh, need our support in every way. Um, I, I imagine, Tom, you as a married man, well, you certainly, certainly know, you're a prayerful person, and you know the importance of prayer as a family, right? To sustain the family, and uh, maybe we could ask you that question. So address the question to you then, okay? Uh, maybe from your own experience, you know how how you could express that to present and future fathers out there. Um, um, how how absolutely essential that is. Well, yeah, absolutely. Of course, um, of course, the the daily family rosary. Um, you know, Our Lady had specifically requested that. From us, but uh, I know you always make the point, Father, about the, uh, the the importance of the father and the family praying because it makes such an impression on the child. And I've definitely found that to be the case. But um, the biggest thing I would say, for, for what it's worth, is that uh, I have found it very helpful to actually teach your children how how to pray, to teach your children to pray. Um, and uh, one of the, the easiest, I think, the best way I've found to do that is just to teach some short little ejaculation prayers and have them uh, learn to, to repeat those throughout the day. And I found that to be um, very, very helpful. I think very beneficial. Just, I think, uh, whether they recognize it or not, you know, I think they're, they're gaining graces from each of those, those prayers. Could you give us example? Well, yeah, I um, just from their earliest age, I've tried with all my children to teach them to the holy names of, of Jesus and Mary just to, re just to repeat those. And I think um, at least several of my children, it's been the very first, first word that they've ever pronounced was, was the holy name. Um, but I, it's been very um, gratifying, I think, just to see how it's, um, I think, become a habit. And a lot of them, you just find them uh, often just repeating repeating the holy names. But also, they're just in the Rukulta. Um, there are so many short little little invocations, um, you know, just one or, one or two lines. Um, there are some things very easy that, a, that a, even a two, three-year-old child, someone is, you know, just barely learning to speak, they can memorize these short little, short little invocations and um, just repeat them often throughout the day. And... I think just getting Make it yeah, getting them in the habit and um, you know just teaching them in every situation that, that you want them to, to pray. You know before you start about your day at, at school or as you're um, doing anything. You know as you're setting about your chores yeah, or playing. Right. Re repeat these, repeat these yeah. prayers. It's very good thing because 
adults will say, well, I don't have time to say my morning prayers. And I said, what's the first thing you do when you get out of bed in the morning? You go, you do your bathroom duties. And they said, have a little font there with holy water. Make the sign of the cross. Let's see. Hail Mary, full of grace, Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, blessed is the thou of Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, and our death, our death, amen. Glory be to the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and shall be well and amen. Thank you, God, for giving me this day. Watch over and protect me this day. You know, I thought it was like, how long did that take? How long? Less than a minute. <laughs> but it has to be. And for the like very devout, it has to be a habit. I can make it take two minutes. It has to be a habit. Mm -hmm. so you have to get into a daily habit. Like, that's a good example they gave here. Mm -hmm. yeah. Make it happen for me. Well, I saw that in conjunction. I mean, I've been to your house at times, and Father Skerke recently has been a guest at your home. We appreciate that. With the little children. Very edifying, right? <laughs> they know how to have fun, but they know how to pray too. And um, it's also edifying, as you say, when they have the prayers, these little shorts, prayers, and they have the name of Jesus on their lips. But you also, uh, in, in, you surround them with holy pictures. And uh, when they relate to the picture and they, you know, point the picture and say Jesus and Mary, and they, they uh, you know, visually it reinforces what you're teaching them in their prayers. Uh, that's another aspect of it too, to surround them with holy things. Um, so, you know, yes, they go out into the world that's surrounded by things that are rather, well, profane, and sometimes downright blasphemous. But within the home, you can really create a kind of haven for them. That's right, that's right. Uh, where everything is in order, everything is, is peace and tranquility and love and, uh, and uh, goodness. And uh, they, they can feel like it's almost a little bit of heaven. Uh, the churches were supposed to be like that until they stripped them bare and, and they made them so cold. But if you go into the old Catholic churches that still have any trace of Catholicism left, in a sense, walking through the door was in a sense like going to heaven. It was very peaceful, tranquil, orderly, and you could breathe a sigh of relief. People had a sense of peace in those churches. And, um, you know, they, they saw the statues of the saints, and it kind of, in their imagination, took them to where the saints really are in heaven with, with you. Made them, it brought, raised their minds and their thoughts to that level, to, to God in heaven. That's what prayer is, right? Prayer is raising your heart and your mind to God. Well, the whole church used to speak to that, used to speak of that to a person who entered there and knelt down in prayer. They can pray so easily. It's as though it just raised them very high. And you can do that in your, in your, in your home, too. You really need to do that in your home, to sanctify your home, so that when your children come in from this brash and brazen world out there, blazing with all of its propaganda, um, the, the children find a, a, like a haven for themselves. Where they, they want to be there, and they love to be there. And uh, even after they leave that home, and they're out in the world, and they're, they're basically on the way to hopefully establishing homes of their own, they want to take that with them. They want to establish a home like that. Say, that haven home, for them. Make a home like a little church or a little sanctuary. Yeah, a little sanctuary. Sanctuary, 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 sanctuary. is a church. Yeah. So, uh, it's a refuge. Enjoy the peace that surpasses all understanding. That's right. Peace the world cannot give. Yep. That's what they have to provide in their home, their children. That's what you're trying to do for little ones in your house. And that's what every Catholic home should be. So there are things that we can do. And because we can, we must. We must do that. I always think as well, Father, the uh, the prayer, the uh, the consecration to the Sacred Heart, 
um, that we make in the enthronement ceremony where we pray that we, we want to banish from our midst the spirit of the world, which, which, which the sacred heart so much. So much yeah. Yes. Yeah, and I think that's a, um, someone takes that to heart and really actually attempts to do that, banish the uh, spirit of the world from their home, then I think uh, the sacred heart actually can reign there. And can actually reign there. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, I hope every Catholic family, every traditional Catholic family has holy water in the house yeah. and regularly blesses the house with the holy water, yeah. going through room by room. You know, it's, it's like a little procession when you have uh, all the kids line up and mom and dad go through the house praying and blessing the home with holy yeah. water, you know. It just is, restores peace and tranquility to the house. Certainly, they're going to be upset. Going to be, there's going to be illness, and there's going to be uh, people are going to have bad days. <laughs> children, not children. Bad hair day. <laughs> yeah, bad. Well, bad or, or little babies, maybe not. <laughs> but uh, you know, to go through the home and bless the home is so important to uh, again restore order and tranquility and a sense of peace and and safety and security in the minds of the children. That's what you want them growing up with, and that's what you want them taking with them to the homes that they establish later on. Okay. Well, uh, we actually had another topic that we wanted to discuss, discuss tonight, but I think we can save that for uh, for next time that we're all back together again. So, uh, like what the, was that? So at least we uh, can you know hold it out there and tell people what's coming. <laughs> well, one one of our uh, viewers wanted uh, some clarification on what exactly the churches. The traditional Catholic Church's uh, position is the correct understanding of free speech. Freedom of speech. Freedom of speech. He said he, he's read okay. some uh, some Catholic documents that have condemned the idea of free speech. Um, yet he definitely sees value in it. So you would like to. Uh, it's a very important that. question. Though. Yes. Yes. So. Uh -huh. not, not quite condemned free speech. Wow. We'll get into that next time. Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> well, we hope to get Father Skirky back sometime. He has one more on his shoulder. Okay. <laughs> you know, anytime you need RoboCop surgery, we hope he'll come back here to Cincinnati. Um, yeah. And Father Rasha, you know, you don't need RoboCop surgery. You can come anytime, too. Uh, I'd like to set it up so we can do the kind of the sp split screen visits so we can get you on and all on the same screen. Right? Uh, there are those who do that very effectively. We can do that, too, can't we? Yeah. Well, no reason why not. <laughs> so let's address that. We have free speech given us by the Creator, part of national law. Okay, well. When the Founding Fathers met in Philadelphia. I'm not so sure in spite of the Creator. <laughs> uh, God tolerates a lot from us. You know. <laughs> but uh, Congress shall make no law. But Tom is actually trying to limit our free speech right now. <laughs> and so far, he wants to close the program. But we ought to, uh, we ought to do another program on the very subject. Right? Sounds good. Next yeah. Tuesday? Oh. <laughs> it's a deal. Let's hope. It's a deal. Okay. Yeah. Well, we'll have to get the technology working for us in the meantime. But please do pray for uh, Mr. Fred Skirky in the meantime. He's going to need our prayers. Absolutely. This whole family. Well, Father Jenkins, Fred Skirky, and Father Maransko, thank you very much. I appreciate you. God bless you all. Thank you, Tom. Yeah. Let's do it again. Yes, let's do it. <laughs> Thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you and God bless you.